Dogs are an important part of our lives. That means protecting them from parasites. Ask your vet about NexGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NexGuard Plus chews provide one-and-done monthly protection against fleas, ticks, heartworm disease, roundworms, and hookworms. Plus, they're delicious and easy to give. Use with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurologic disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting a preventive. Ask about NexGuard Plus Chews. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Welcome to the NASCAR NBC podcast. I'm your host, Nate Ryan. Today, taping the podcast at Joe Gibbs Racing in Huntersville, North Carolina at their studio here, right inside the front lobby entrance where I'm joined by the man whose name is on the building, <laughs> Joe Gibbs, the team owner of Joe Gibbs Racing, and Dave Alpern, the president of Joe Gibbs Racing. Dave and Coach, thanks for being here. Yeah, our pleasure. We're thrilled to have you. We built this studio. It's come in really handy for us to be able to do things like this. Appreciate you being here, and uh, we want to welcome you, and we'll do the best we can here. Oh, you guys have already given me luxurious accommodations. We're sitting on a couch, which is not normally the way these podcasts are taped. We've got some video equipment here, so you guys are taping this uh, for your team, social and digital. So this is much more of a a welcoming, upscale experience. Nate, are you saying that Joe's name is still on the sign outside? Did you (laughs) check when you came out? I I I have to to walk out there every (laughs) now and then. Okay, after I finish some of these meetings where I'm told to get out, I walk out there and go, is my name still on this thing? <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. Well, a good thing, Dave, that there now is a sign because there after is, reading the right. book, I learned yeah. that it took yeah. several years for there to be a Joe Gibbs racing sign out front. That is a true story. I, I talk in the book about, I think, one of the one of the reasons we've been successful is that Coach, early on, we kind of had one mission, and that was really going fast. It sounds simple, but the idea was if we go fast, if we lead the most laps, win the most races, everything else will take care of itself. We would actually ask the question when we would make capital purchases or hires, you know, hey, does this make us go faster? And a symbol of that was the business park when we moved in here wanted some crazy amount of money for the sign out front. And in the earlier days, honestly, we would we would look at that and we'd, we'd put it up on the board with all the other things and we'd go, well, heck no, we're not doing that because we can put that money towards something that makes us go fast. And so year after year, that kind of became the symbol of our mantra where, you know, hey, we're not doing your project if we're not getting a sign, you know, and it became the symbol of, hey, that doesn't make us go fast. And so eventually, eventually we had sponsors go, hey, listen, we can't find your place. It'd be nice. <laughs> it'd be nice if you had a sign. So we finally broke down and got one because uh, sponsors help us go fast. And so we needed the sign. But I've heard it that. honestly took probably 10 years to get a sign out front. No kidding. It took a long time. It really did. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's a nice sign though, now that we have it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, it's visible from and the And it street. does have his name on it, which is nice. So that's good. You weren't so concerned about your name being out front as long as you were winning, winning races. As long right? as you were winning races, we're good. <laughs> That's what we figured out in racing. (laughs) So you can read more about that anecdote about the sign in front of Joe Gibbs Racing in the new book, Taking the Lead, which was written by Dave Alpern, who, as I said, is the president of Joe Gibbs Racing. And we're here to talk about that book today. And I wanted to start with the origins of the book, Dave. From what I've been able to glean, your dad worked in the CIA and he had all these great stories and 
unfortunately he died a few years ago and yeah. all of those stories never really got told right. and was that sort of the impetus yeah for yeah in fact he down? started writing a book himself oh and i i had asked him hey can i record all your stories because he had gotten cancer and i thought you know hey just in case you don't finish i'd love to make sure it gets finished and you know my dad was real optimistic and he said no no i got this and he he got about three chapters into it and he passed away and that was about 10 years ago and i i remember telling my wife at the time you know hey my story isn't probably as exciting as my dad's, but I would love my kids and their kids and future generations, if for nothing else. And again, I never envisioned it would be published and people would actually buy it. I just thought I'd love future generations to kind of hear the story of kind of God's amazing faithfulness to to not only me, but this company that we work in. And, you know, at the time, I didn't know what kind of book it would be. I didn't know if it would be a parenting book or a faith-based book or a business, you know, business book, because my story was certainly not complete at the time. And then, I started just keeping notes and just kind of keeping a log of, hey, this is a story or a principle or an idea. And about six or seven years into it, after JD, you know, had been sick and I was the president now, it kind of just all sort of came together where I thought, you know, I really, I really want to share this story. And I was, again, kind of prayed about it with my wife. And, you know, I think coach, coach has experience writing a book and has had, I think, I don't, I don't remember what your exact saying was, but it was first, you have to have something to say, you know, (laughs) (laughs) that's pretty important. And I remember you saying that. And I thought, well, let's pray about this. If we think that I do have something to say and that a publisher thinks I have something to say, then I'll do it. And if not, Hey, I'll just write it for myself and have it for my kids. And so fortunately a publisher said, Hey, we like your story. And that started a journey of about, it's about two years of kind of writing it and organizing it. And for someone who's ADD like me, it was not the, it's not my favorite process in the world. It was, it was kind of hard, but I was really grateful that all kind of felt like it came together pretty well. I thought it did. I thought yeah. it read really well. It's certainly Thanks. a labor of love writing a book. And <laughs> mostly labor. Yeah, mostly yeah. labor. <laughs> Some love, I think, when you're finished with yeah. it. And as Dave said, coach, you know that feeling. 12 years ago, you had Game Plan for Life come out, your legacy book about your, not just NASCAR career, but NFL career. Correct. What was your reaction to Dave deciding <laughs> well, that he wanted I, to write a book? I, to me, I, I thought, first of all, like Dave said, I had a little spiritual father, and I said to him one time, George, I'm thinking about writing a book, and he did say to me, do you have anything to say? <laughs> and so I think Dave has yeah. something to say. And when you think about one of the great things about racing, I enjoy being with some of the people that sponsor our cars, they actually built their companies. And it's amazing to me the way they started. John Menard, you know, carrying nails out to construction guys. And today has a huge company. Fred Smith, you know, his first venture. Norm Miller, I just finished with Norm. These guys started with almost nothing. Well, if you think about our race team, we started with 17 people. It was, I kind of looked at it as, this will probably be something that'll kind of be a hobby, okay? We were on a small rented uh, building over on Harris Boulevard. And so Dave and his story, I think, is exciting for this reason. It's, it's a story of a young person coming on board, seeing a company built, how he fit into it and the others fit into it, and how you build something that winds up today where we are. And now he's the president of the company. So that's a journey. I think that's exciting for people to hear. And then, of course, how a company gets built. I love those stories of when you talk to people that do these outstanding. Johnny Morris you know, started selling a few things in the back of his dad's hardware store. And today, the, the, I get fascinated. That's the great thing about America. I love that. There's stories there where people say, I have a vision. 
I want to do something, they take off and do it. Those are some of the greatest stories in America, I think. And so I think Dave's fits in there, and there's a lot to it. I learned a lot about Joe Gibbs Racing because Dave was there from the outset as, I think, first the unpaid intern. <laughs> Eventually, yeah. you got paid a few months in after you proved yeah. you could sell T-shirts at Redskins That's right. games. Yeah. But you started out as an unpaid intern here out of a broom closet with no power outlet, and this wasn't this building, by the way. This right, is right. I kind of like the unpaid part. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. I like I liked the broom closet more than I liked the unpaid part. Yeah, that is true. No. <laughs> so that was uh, more than 20 years ago. That was, uh, I guess, would have been 1992? Yeah, yeah t- uh, 90, 92, 93. So, yeah, it was about tw- really about 28 years ago, which is cra- like crazy. And your relationship with Coach goes back even further than that. You met J.D. Gibbs, Coach's son, while you guys were going to middle school together in Fairfax, Virginia. Yeah, no, and I I talk a lot about we became friends in middle school, and, and, you know, they had just moved to town, and it wasn't the greatest start for the Skins. They started (laughs) 0-5, and and I wasn't (laughs) sure if J.D. was going to be my friend long before they left town, and gratefully they didn't. Yeah, we went to high school, and, you know, J.D., I've, I've shared this story a lot, J.D. was you know, to say he was the all-American kid would be like an understatement. I mean, he's you know, great looking. He was the quarterback of the football team. I joke he drove a dang Z28 like he was straight out of a, out of Hollywood, and but was the just the nicest guy and and really would befriend different people. And 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 I was one of his friends. And honestly, I I would always you know, JD had a lot of friends. And my start here, one of the things that stood out that I talk in the book is you know JD had a lot of friends and could have asked anybody, and he asked me. And so my motivation early on was really not to let either of them down. J, you know, JD could ask asked anybody, but he asked me. And I remember later in life him saying, when I asked him, why'd you pick me? He said, because I knew I could count on you. And so I remember thinking, well, then I'm not going to let you down. And I felt the same way about coach. And so you, you go into it going, and, you know, unlike a driver or a crew chief where they have a specific, you know, drivers are the best in the world at what they do, and a crew chief's the best in the world, you know, with, with me, I mean, I'm, again, I, Joe talks a lot about average Joes. I really am kind of an average Joe. There wasn't one skill that I had. So I've got to, I said, I got to figure out how to earn my keep here and not let them down without, it was going to look different because a driver just says, Hey, I'm going to go win races and that's how I'm going to earn it. Well, I didn't touch the cars. I didn't make the cars go fast. So what were areas I could do that? And that's kind of how it all started, but it really was them, you know, JD saying, Hey, I want to have my buddy come down here because we needed some help and coach saying, Hey, I'll, you know, I'll give you a shot. And, and so me not really not wanting to let them down. That's kind of how it all started. And so over those 28 years, you've gone from unpaid intern to president of the entire company. And coach, did you see from the outset that Dave Alpern would become that kind of leader in your company? Because Dave tells some great stories in the book about when he was a kid and he would go to the restaurant where you guys would have dinners after Redskins games after you won. And Dave would say that as soon as he walked in the room, you would say, hey, Pern's here. Did you know there was something special about this guy from (laughs) the outset? Well, I think JD, you know, obviously they were buddies. But through that process of them growing up, they were around the house a lot and you get a chance to see them. I talk about playing football out there in the snow with them. So you get to know somebody. That's the best way to hire somebody or get somebody to come on your team is if you know them. And, of course, J.D. had real confidence there. And I I think the other thing for me, I remember in my coaching days, uh, we were in a tough situation with the Redskins and we were playing a Monday night game against the Cardinals. And I always talked to the team the night before. I'm too nervous the day of the game. So you got to wait all the way to Monday night. I go out in front of the team. And I just said this. I said, 
if you guys got anything to give the Redskins, you need to give it tonight. We we got a real problem. Got down, had our Lord's Prayer. When we stood up, I had 12 guys go through four Super Bowls with me. Three of them up front had tears. They were crying. And so my point is, I felt if you can get people to come on your team that care about the team, those are the people that come early, stay late, they got a heart in it, and, and they are, you know, loyal to what's taking place. And I felt like Dave over those years, and I think J.D. saw it early, and they were buddies, and there were actually three of them that came on board there. And they wound up miraculously going into different areas, and their expertise helped build what we have today. So I think Dave cared. I appreciate that, and Coach was gracious enough to write the forward, and it was actually kind of awkward. This is actually awkward because, you know, normally <laughs> you know, yeah, It's awkward because he didn't pay me. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I asked him to write the forward, and, again, he wrote a – I don't know if I've actually even thanked him. I'll take this opportunity. Again, the words meant a lot, and, again, he talks about some of what he said there in the forward. And, but you don't think that, you know, when you're a young kid, you're just going, you got a complex, and I was terrified. Well, I, I talk in the book about being terrified of Jimmy. I mean, I was terrified of pretty much everyone in the building because the nickname, you know, we were the college pukes. You know, there were these three guys that weren't – racers and we came into this building with all hardcore racers that had been racing their whole lives. Led by Jimmy Makar. Led by Jimmy Makar whose nickname most people did not know. People who know him now didn't know his nickname was Mad Dog. And <laughs> Sounds like know, a guy who likes college. Co cute. Yeah, coach yeah. went in and just said, hey, here's three guys. You know, you picked the first 15, but I got three for you. You know, one was JD, <laughs> one was Todd, and one was me. Figure something out for him. And my goal every day was to not be noticed by Jimmy Makar. <laughs> to be where he wasn't you know, don't embarrass JD and Joe, but don't get noticed by Jimmy. That was that was my deal. So, Coach uh, Dave describes in the book that you like people who you call butt busters, <laughs> which is based on character and heart and talent and how they fit into the JGR culture. I think you just said that essentially yeah. that knowing Dave before he came here, you look for people who fit that culture. Was Dave, I guess, what you yeah. refer to as a butt buster? <laughs> yeah, I, I think he, I think he is. And I think that group was, that initial yeah, group sure. was obviously Jimmy Maycar leading everything. Uh, we still got, I think, seven of that original 17 are still here in the building. Robin on the other side mm -hmm. here from the very beginning. Don Meredith was my um, business friend, not the football Don Meredith, but Don started everything off and was there. So it was a group of people that, you know, that I think had a real passion for it. And we weren't sure, obviously, where it was going. We thought it was going to be one car. Can we make this work? And you didn't want to let down Norm Miller, who stepped in and said, hey, I want to do this, his company, Interstate Batteries. And can you believe today we're still together? I just finished the weekend with Norm. We were fishing and stuff before the race this weekend. 30 years. Our last contract that we signed will go through 30 years. I think... I think that's one of the great things about business and building something and being around people, which I've been fortunate enough. I know God's blessed me twice to get in the NFL, then to come over here and be in NASCAR. But the fun part of it is that, the relationships and building something. And can you make it go, you know? Nobody knew, hey, that first year we didn't win a race. Right. I said, man, we're going to probably get kicked out of this thing. They're going to kick us out. And and so those are the thrills in life, though. And I, those are the things that I love is building teams with people 
Because really, if you do something like we won our first championship, and we took everybody, uh, you know, to the convention and everything in New York, and to see those people, you know, all of them, they're part of that team, and they made it happen. And that's still our our our, our motto here is it's about our people. And um, we have a bonus structure where all, everybody that works here gets to share in what we win on the weekends. And and so all those things, uh, I enjoy that, and I enjoy the challenge of it. And and obviously what we're in is really hard. So I think he'd love that too. You know, if you can do it, man, this day is hard. It's supposed to be hard. Yes. That's yeah. What, that's what yeah. makes it rewarding even yeah. more so. And when I hear that butt buster term, it, it reminds me of when I hear people talk about racers in motorsports. I mean, essentially that's what they're saying. You have to go above and beyond to excel in motorsports. It sounds like there's a, there's a good fit there between what you look for in people and what's required of being good at auto racing. What I've been in, like the football and then come over to racing and what you see in football, I saw it in football. Some players, we had 55 voluntary workouts, voluntary. I had guys make 52, 53, 54, and I had guys make 18. 19 and make excuses and you kind of saw what happened the guys making the workouts caring getting after it they're the guys who made the team and the amazing thing in the nfl our super bowl teams one half of those were free agents so in other words it was the guys that went after it and worked and were butt busters and make it happen and so um yeah i think that's part of team building and being around people and trying to accomplish something. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up Norm Miller because uh, that anecdote also in the book about your first meeting with him and interstate batteries deciding they were going to take a flyer on a race team after you called him the day after your meeting and said, I don't know if we're really ready for it. And you said, well, actually, we're thinking about sponsoring you. <laughs> yeah. So uh, as you mentioned, that launched a, a sponsor relationship that has lasted uh, a very long time and grew into a very successful organization. And uh, Dave, I, I want to get into what the book talks about as far as the five principles that sort of guide yeah. the success yeah. of Joe Gibbs Racing. Those are deliver more than you cost, create a winning culture, stay on mission, treat people as souls, not transactions, and win at life. So I just want to give you and, and Coach yeah. as well just a chance to talk about those. Well, I think I appreciate that. And there's obviously a lot a lot to unpack in all of them. There's actually a whole book's worth. Yeah. I think, I think <laughs> 219 if pages. We, if, yeah. we, if, we, uh, if we break some of those out, I think that first section, the, the idea of delivering more than you cost, I think applies to us as individuals and as a company. If you think about, you know, whatever business you're in, uh, if you're listening, if you want to have customers forever, deliver more value to them than they're paying you, you know? And so whether it's, you know, FedEx or we, we talk about all our partners, Bass Pro, Stanley, uh, Mars, the idea for us is we want to deliver so much value, so much more value to them that they're paying us that they couldn't even fathom not sponsoring our race team. And so that's kind of, a, I think it's a good lesson, whatever business you're in. And then I think as people, if, if you're an employee, if you want to make yourself indispensable in the company you work for, be a butt buster, be, become indispensable, deliver more value to the company than you're paid. How do you do that? It's not rocket science. There's very simple principles. Never say that's not my job. Be really good at little things. Don't, you know, don't, don't want big things until you master the little things. Be a fountain, not a drain. I mean, those are all things that are choices that I think we wake up. And again, when you're working in a broom closet, you're trying to figure out how do I earn my keep here? 
there were a lot of little things like that. And I've got some examples, some specific examples in the book of how maybe doing little things led to a little more responsibility and a little more. But often we want to bypass all that and go straight to the, hey, I want I want this big responsibility over here. Well, that's not going to come until you've been entrusted with and done a good job with some of these little things. And so and we talk about culture. We talk about staying on mission. Um, again, I think one of the things we've done well is stay on mission here, you know, with the going fast. And then again, as we get into the later parts of the book, one of the things, and maybe we'll park here for a second. One of the things I think I really learned from JD was this idea the, of treating people like a soul and not a transaction. And, and I think that's not just at work. That's at the grocery store. That's just in life. That's you know, and you know what it means to be treated like a transaction when someone comes up to you and either they need something from you, you're a, you're kind of a, a cog in the wheel of, of them trying to do something for themselves, or they're looking over your shoulder at the next more important person that they're wanting to meet, whether you're at the track or whatever. And then there's the type of person, and, and JD would always do this, like every interaction with JD usually started with something about me. How are you doing? You know, he knew what my interests were. Hey, how are you doing? How's your family? How's your, whatever it was that he knew I was interested in. And I think that's, that goes a long way in business. And again, I think that's a great lesson in treating your coworkers that way, the, your clients, the people in life. If you want a good business, it starts with put people before profits, treat them like a soul and not a transaction. So there's a, obviously we can unpack any of those, but I think that's one that really stands out to me. And there's a whole section in the book about what that looks like, you know, treating people like a soul. Coach, I know you just talked about that people being the most important part of the team. It definitely is. And I think that's everything that I've kind of been in. It's been team, you know, it was football. It was over here to racing and a small family business. And of course in life, Keeping the right priorities in life, God first. But the second thing is the influence I'm having on others. And that's what Dave's talking about. I think J.D. was the person for me and our family was really, he was the person in our family that kind of set the goals for how you deal with people. He started our giving ministry here at the race team where we give to charities. He started that. And then there came a time where we had a reduction. It's only the second time we're going through some of that now, but there was a reduction in our motor room, and J.D. set aside money to follow all those guys. I mean, that's the way he kind of cared about things and treating people that way, and there's just story after story with him. And he kind of led, and that really what you wind up with is a culture and he was so much better at that than I was individually, the way he treats me. I kind of focus on big things and doing all this stuff. J.D. really cared about people. And the stories are coming back after he went to be with the Lord. Stacks on my desk of stories about how he treated someone. You know, a um, little girl sent me a picture of her, and she had to struggle walking. And she talked about how J.D. met her in the lobby one time, saw her. And, and he took her on a tour through the whole building. She wrote back every year to JD. She sent me pictures. She, that was, <laughs> that was a relationship that he started, you know. But those stories are there over and over again. It says a lot because I have a tendency to go right. Sometimes I, I go to the big things. You know what I mean? JD went to the individual. And I'll add one of, the, one of the testimonies of that. You know, 
at JD's service, uh, which you can see at jdgibbslegacy.com, one of the great, you talk about a life well lived, but one of the things you point out is an hour and a half service, not once did somebody talk about an accomplishment from work. What they were talking about was the influence that they that he'd have on them. Now, many of those came through the platform of work, and so JD was really good at what he did, but he knew how to use it as a platform for other things, and that's what that's what affected people. That's what you know, that's what affected me. That's what affected so many people that Joe was talking about is, is that it was, hey, look, we're called to be really good at what we do. Again, I think that's a biblical mandate is, hey, be excellent. So, so as a race team, you know, who want, who's going to care about what we do? Like who, you know, nobody cares what you think if you stink. So (laughs) be really good, lead a lot of laps, win a lot of races. But JD had this keen awareness of, once we do that, it's, it, that is to create a platform to do other things, whether it's giving, whether it's impacting people, whether it's using it as a platform. And, and I think that was really the example, kind of a barometer for all of us is watching how he did that um, in really in every facet of the company and in his life. This seems a good place to note that proceeds from this book, Taking the Lead, will go to the J.D. Gibbs Legacy Fund, the Young Life Ministry yeah. You talked about. Yeah, so the portion that would go to the author, right, is going to be donated to that, and JD's Legacy Fund funds urban ministry here at Young Life, at, uh, Young Life in Charlotte, some of the under-resourced high schools, and Young Life's a ministry that was very dear to JD and I in high school, and uh, really important to us and our company now, and so we're really grateful to be able to do that. So I, I joke that's a, that makes me uh, be able to shamelessly plug the book because I know <laughs> that the <laughs> that, my, that my portion is all being donated to something that's a great cause. Yeah, that's great to hear. JD was a special person. I've got some more questions about him. I want to get yeah. to that eventually. But first, I just want to go back to, to Dave's story a little bit really quickly, Coach. And it seems like his big breakthrough was deciding that he was going to sell Joe Gibbs racing <laughs> t-shirts on consignment at Redskins game. So I, I heard Dave's side of that. I'm wondering uh, what well, your side of that I, would be. I'm not sure I told him much about that at the time. <laughs> I, he, he I, might, I don't think I was asked. <laughs> yes, he that. was definitely not asked. was just done. No. Okay, which yeah. is part of being aggressive and being a young guy that's going after it. Uh, but actually, Dave handled a bunch of early projects. We had a van deal that we he kind of took off yeah. on. And so I, you know, for most people, I encourage them, particularly if they're young people, if you want to know something about something or you're worried about, you know, should I get into this? The best thing to do is dive in because is just get after it because you'll learn by mistakes and all of it, but you can't sit back and guess what something's going to be. And I think Dave took off that way. And it was different projects, jumping on them, going after it. You know what I mean? Some of those bombed out, but some of them, you know, and you see, that's how you hit a home run sometimes, too. So being aggressive and getting after it, I think, is a big part of young people starting out in life. That aggression that you had, Dave, you talked about this in the book as well. When you first moved to Charlotte, you were still dating the woman who would become your wife, Stacy. Yep. And she was still in Virginia. So you yeah. were commuting back and forth six <laughs> hours at a time, Fridays and Sundays, and then working here full time. So it was well, not if easy you, life. if you saw <laughs> Stacy, you'd know why he's going. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> that is we, have a, we have a saying, he outpunted his coverage. I did. Stacy, let I, me just I, say that. I, I did. No, for that first... <laughs> For that first really year and a half that I was down here before I got married, pretty much every other week I would go to the race, and then every other week I would go to Washington, yeah, or go back to Virginia to see her. So yeah, no, we'd we'd work and leave on Friday, and it's funny we early on we had this deal with a van conversion company, and they had let me borrow this um, pop top. 
top van that had, you know, it was like a big conversion van. And I'm, you know, I'm 23 years old. And this was, it was funny that I would drive around this thing. I drove around in this big conversion van and I would go back and forth uh, to Virginia uh, to see her. And, you know, her dad, who's kind of one of my spiritual heroes now, but, you know, at the time, hey, he was very strict and she was his oldest daughter and he was very protective. And so the idea was you got to have a real job before you're going to ask her to marry. So I was very motivated <laughs> for many reasons. I didn't want to let the Gibbs down and I didn't want to let my future father-in-law down and I wanted to marry Stacy. So I was like, I better make something of this or or this is going to take forever. We'd already been dating, you know, since she was 17 and I was 18. So we dated all through college. It's now I'm out of college and I'm like, all right, I'd like to get married at some point here. And so, yeah, I had to, <laughs> I had no fallback <laughs> plan. So I was very motivated to make it work. Obviously that sounds like yeah. a ton of commitment there <laughs> that you put in, not just for the personal side, but the professional side, doing it all at once. And, you know, you talked about David, the saying, that's not my job is unacceptable at Joe Gibbs Racing. And I'm just curious, I, I'm going to start with Coach on this one. Do you have any examples of that, of doing things, do you lead by example in that way? Doing things that people might not expect the team owner to do to show people, hey, nothing is out of bounds here for helping Yeah, well, the first year when I started, the idea was I was going to continue to coach. And the guys, and Don Meredith and Jimmy Makar, the team, would take the race team. And so, you know, that was the game plan. Well, after that year, I decided, you know, Coy was playing football at Stanford. I'd missed most of JD's football games at William & Mary. And so I made a decision to get out for family so I could go see Coy play football in the, at Stanford and then obviously my passion you know of racing so I had those two reasons and so when I stepped out you know that was that was different for me and so I was starting a new life and so we took off in that direction that's what Pat and I we said hey look let's go to Charlotte and uh, Virginia was just fantastic for us. And to get a coach, I think the greatest sports franchise in the world was the Washington football team. And to get to do that and then to come down here and start a new world, I was nervous about it because I said, you know, I've been standing on the sideline telling people to hit them, kill them. You know what I mean? That was my job as a coach. And now i got to go do something else. <laughs> Can I make a living? Uh, that was That was exciting. I will say that. But the, the guys had all already kicked things off, and they pretty much had it in hand. But I came in, your point was, to do what I could do. So I didn't grow up in this world, the racing world. I grew up in football world. So I'm not a technical person. can't set a car up or something. So my goal when I came down here, what I feel like that one of the things I enjoy is team building and working with people and so sponsors. That was a natural thing for me because, as we all know, our sport is different than any other sport. You've got to have key sponsors, and they're really not sponsors. They're partners to invest in what you're doing or you can't race. And so that became my goal. Okay, can we make this financially work? And I, I listen, I would say from early on when Joe got here was he's always to this day set the tone I think for everyone anyone who's a manager here who's running a department knows that and again I talk a lot about the book about sense of urgency and different things that coach it permeates through the building but it starts with him and he doesn't have any other businesses like some of the other owners so morning noon and night it's racing and he's thinking about it and I think does a great job of 
you know, everyone sees coach go hard. And he, again, from day one, he was going to every race. And so people would see him, all right, well, if coach is, coach is doing it, I can definitely do it. And and I think there was that example. And I think one of the things as we as we grew up in the business, J.D. and, and myself, one of our jobs was to keep coach focused because he, he really was involved in a lot of stuff. And so what you try to figure out is what are his highest value areas? Like what are the things that coach is the only one that can do, you know, so it's those pep talks on race day. It's talking to those sponsors and the C-level executives and all the different things that he's unique, uniquely gifted. And, and there's more than enough to fill up a day every day of those things. And so over the years, we would watch him do that. But I think his his sense of urgency is probably the way I would describe sort of permeated to everyone else that we're not going to wait till tomorrow. We're going to do it today. And then everyone else in their department feels that same way that, hey, we got to get after it again. They don't want to let coach down because he's He's doing it himself. So definitely you felt that from from day one. Well, one great example that I was not aware of, we talk a lot about Rick Hendrick and Roger Penske, your point, Dave, having all these outside businesses yeah. and they have the business-to-business deals. But I was unaware that Joe Gibbs was a FedEx salesman who has created $100 million <laughs> in annual revenue yeah. by getting yeah. your sponsors to like buy into, hey, if you're already shipping stuff, I've, yeah. I got somebody you might want to do business with. So we have a joke <laughs> internally, I'll let him talk on it, that when we're in a meeting with a new partner, it's almost like what's the over-under on how how many minutes it will take coach to bring up, hey, so who do you do your shipping with? And what ends up happening was, you know, you're connecting them at high levels where you can get business done. And yeah, we're we're sort of almost obsessed with getting companies to switch their shipping to FedEx because we know they're going to get, you know, it's going to be a better deal for them too. But uh, that, and, and coaches, yeah, coach is really good at it. Well, I think when we first got in racing, everybody knows and the 80s and 90s just opened the doors, people roaring in, you had sponsored, well, over a period of time, we know there's great competition in pro sports, and it became tough, and mm-hmm. we, all that kind of, you know, now you got to really, how can you create value? And so that became, for us, we quickly realized that, and it became B2B. How do we bring value to the company? It's social and digital. We've got a whole team that works on that. It's the show car programs. It's putting everything together. It's the driver speaking. It's me. It, you Putting together the whole package. Because there is no CEO of big companies that, you know, are going to spend their resources watching just the racing portion of it. Yes, it's important. We reach out to our fan base, our TV base. That's part of it. But it's the other part that adds real value many times. And so we hear the reports back when it comes to them making a decision, are we going to continue in racing? You know, many times it's the sales guys that stand up and go, hey, we, we, we can't afford to, you know, we're, we're trying to, we open doors with our sponsors and it creates value. FedEx is a perfect example, you know, getting the other companies to ship, ship exclusively with FedEx to move their shipping to FedEx. Now, Fred sits there in the meeting and he goes, gosh, we got racing, we got Denny, we got the racetrack, we got TV, but we also got shipping, you know, mm-hmm. money coming into us. It becomes a no-brainer. The sponsorship pays for itself, yeah. essentially. One ways. of the things that's so exciting for us is that each of the sponsors that you see on our cars each week kind of has a different almost secret sauce, so to speak. FedEx is an easy one to talk about because, you know, it's shipping and everyone ships with someone. But for Mars, it's a little bit different. For Toyota, for Bass Pro, for Stanley Black & Decker, they each have a couple of key deliverables. And it's kind of one of the fun things we get to work on is making sure, again, going back to delivering value, that at the end of the year, when it comes time to renew the contract, we want them to be able to say, all right, 
on one side, here's what we pay for this sponsorship. And on this side, here's how they delivered on those deliverables. And you want it to be a no-brainer where they say, we got to keep this going. And again, we pride ourselves that we've had, you know, I think our average sponsorship is right around a decade, which is unusual in pro sports. And it's because that's what we that's what we wake up and go to bed thinking about is how to do that. And that's, you know, I speak at colleges about that. That is of in itself, I think, just an interesting aspect of NASCAR that's different from, from other sports. And it's our lifeblood, so we've got to be good at it. And, and as we all know, the business world is rapidly changing, the technology and everything that's in it. And what companies are looking for, it's rapidly changing. You got to, uh, and I'm, I'm convinced there'll be things in the future that we can bring to the table because of racing, relationships, B2B, social and digital that provide value. Dave, your book has a lot of great details on how you guys maintain those business relationships. One that struck me was when Carl Edwards retired, when you had to go to all the sponsors <laughs> yeah. and essentially renegotiate deals <laughs> because yeah. they weren't going to have Carl Edwards anymore. Yeah, I'll let Coach you. Most, yeah, one, was, that's probably one of the most shocking conversations yeah. I ever had. It was after the season, and it was they the week said, of hey, Christmas. <laughs> yeah, and they said, Carl's come by, wants to see you. And so I figured he's going to come in and say, you know, hey, have a great Christmas and everything. You know, <laughs> here's a young guy, you know, making quite a bit of money racing cars. Who doesn't want to do that, you know? And he comes in and he goes, Joe, I think it's time for me to step down. <laughs> what are you talking about? Yeah. You know? And so we went through it. Yeah, it, that caused a lot. The one thing I would say about racing is a lot like football from the standpoint it's rapidly changing. You're, you're on your toes all the time. Amending all those sponsor contracts like you had to do, Dave, is that <laughs> just a, a case of just being proactive and knowing that, hey, we don't have Carl Edwards anymore, so we have to ensure that we maintain good relationships? Well, one, one of the unique things, again, when we go back to the uniqueness of NASCAR, you know, the, when the sponsor becomes the identity of the team, so Denny Hamlin drives the FedEx Camry, Kyle drives the M&M's Camry, there'll never be an NFL team called the, uh, you know, the, the Carolina FedExes or the Denver FedExes. So that direct connection means the sponsor's involved. And what ends up happening is, you know, hey, in the NFL, when he made a quarterback change, I can assure you he never had to call a sponsor to say, hey, we're about to make this change at quarterback. I want to let you know. But in our sport, it's a big deal. And you're calling the sponsor. Now, again, the spot, your relationship with the sponsor is such that they're smart enough to say, it's your race team. You, we're not going to tell you, we, you know, we're not putting drivers in. But it's their driver, it's their brand, and so they're involved in that discussion. So, of course, when, yeah, when you go from having a, a championship-caliber veteran driver to, hey, he's retiring and you're going to bring a young guy up probably a year earlier than you were planning on it, you got to go talk that through the sponsor. And, you know, again, a contract already says, hey, we've got this driver. So you had to make some changes, and, again, it was on Christmas week, and there was a number of them, and they were all very gracious and we were able to do it. But what, what it illustrates is you can have 100 plans on a whiteboard, and we do. We'll talk about, all right, here's, you know, in a perfect world, all right, here's Daniel's path, and here's, here's you know, next year you'll have Carl or whatever. And we could have had 100 of them, and one of them was not, hey, Carl will be gone next year and you're going to move Daniel Suarez up. So, you know, and then all of a sudden the next call is to Daniel Suarez, who I think was at a restaurant with his parents. And, hey, by the way, congrats, you just won the Xfinity Championship. Instead of running for that next year, we're moving you up because Carl Edwards retired. And you're kind of going, huh? You know, <laughs> so, and whether it's, I mean, you can go through our history and time and time again, there's things like that where I often say it's just circumstances have so much to do with things. You can plan all you want, but 
a sponsor changes or a, or a driver or whatever, and it, it just kind of can blow your plan up in your face. Sure. And, uh, you know, again, that's where the relationships that we have with partners is a good thing because you can go to them and walk them through it. And hopefully you've got enough of a history where you've proven yourself to they say, I trust you, you know, you're good. You know, whatever whatever you think's best, we've yeah. got your back type of thing is what you hope for. And the book certainly, again, delves into a lot of that. And I just want to touch on a couple of other yeah. competition things. One of the things I think the book does a good job of trying to explain is how Joe Gibbs Racing differentiates itself from other NASCAR teams. And you list three core values there, Dave. The first is honoring God. The second, people before profits. The third, a relentless pursuit of winning. The first one, faith is a big part of working at Joe Gibbs Racing. So how does faith relate to, I guess, hiring people here? Does everybody here sort of embrace those values? I think the easiest way for me to describe that God and in what you do in a business and how does God fit into racing for us. In the Bible, you talk about the disciples. They were out fishing, okay, and had caught nothing. And they started back in, and Jesus was, was standing on the shore, and he said, put the nets down on the other side. And they went, hey, we've caught nothing, Lord. And he said, put the nets down on the other side. And they pulled in a haul that literally broke the nets. And I, I always kind of use that when I talk to our people here. So you can be the best in the world at what you do. And if God's not in it, you can get nothing. And that's what was, I think, demonstrated there. Those guys knew everything about the lake that they were fishing on. They had the best equipment. They'd been there forever doing that, and they got a zero. And when Christ got involved, they got a great catch. I kind of use that here for us. Man, we want God involved. And that's prayer. That's our giving ministry and the things that we do with our chaplains here. We have Bob Dyer heads up our chaplain corps. And so we want God involved with what we're doing because we want to have a big catch. That's the best way for me to describe it. And I think it starts with, again, when you go back, what's the, what's the number one thing for a Christian business? It's the same as any business, which is be great. So to be great, you're going to hire great crew chiefs. You're going to hire great drivers. You're going to hire people based on, hey, who's the best to get this job done? Again, they all know that from the top, coaches – covering this thing in prayer and coaches trying to be a faithful steward. I think a lot of what honoring God is, is hopefully things that people see in the way that we act, not in the way that we make them think or believe. It's just in the way that hopefully mm -hmm. the leadership acts and the way that the company acts. We try to honor God first by doing things the right way, by using our platform to do, to do good, uh, to do uh, things that honor the Lord. Um, and, and again, but hopefully it starts with just the way we do our business, which is treating people the right way, being really good at what we do. I think is, you know, first and foremost. You bring up some interesting examples, though, Dave, like in the book about meshing Christian principles with auto racing, which inherently requires you to bend some rules at times. And, you know, you brought up the Magnets controversy in, in the Nationwide Series. There was the, the, the Kenseth victory at Kansas in 2013 that followed that, right. and, you know, created a little bit, I think, more controversy because of what yep, had happened yep. earlier. How do you do that? How, how do you blend those kind of Christian values with knowing that you're going to be in a sport where sometimes you have to work in gray areas? Yeah, I think, again, hopefully over time you've earned the right by demonstrating that you're going to, you're, you're trying to do the right thing. Again, it is a tough sport. And the, the interesting dynamic here versus stick and ball sport is, you know, on the football field, 
You set your players loose. If somebody has an infraction, they throw a flag. You pay your penalty right there, and it's over with. Here, because we have machines that get built, it's not just the athlete. You have you know, a rule book that's two inches thick, and, and the idea is if you want to be fast, hey, you're pushing it as far as you can go to go fast without going over. And over the course of 30 years and talking about a gram here or a quarter of a whatever over here, you're going to push stuff and someone's going to go over the top. And, you know, the hard part, and I use one of the examples in there, you know, again, we got penalized one year for an engine part that we didn't even make. We bought it. It got installed. I mean, you're talking about like a thousandth of a gram. Well, what ends up happening is you get penalized. And I think I use the example in the book that that day on the Sports Center ticker, it just said Joe Gibbs Racing caught cheating. And so <laughs> the average person reads that and right. goes, those guys are a bunch of good for nothing. Right. You know, I knew it. And and, and just to clarify, that this wasn't even a performance advantage. It, this was right, something it was that not a performance advantage. You would advantage. want to be it heavier, was, not lighter. It, that one was an honest <laughs> mistake of someone who put something in. But, yeah, and then, and then you think – we just destroyed our reputation over something. And so the easy answer is it's hard. You got, again, 500 people, you're pushing it, and you have something like that. And so hopefully, again, over time, you have a body of work that people can look at and say they're doing the right thing. You know, it's not a, you know, if that was happening every month, you'd start going, okay, there's something, there's a pattern here. Yeah. Hopefully the pattern with us is treating people like a soul, doing things the right way, that when something like that happens, your partners, your fans kind of go, okay, that's out of, you know, that wasn't a, there's a difference. But no, it's, that's a long way of saying it's hard. You know, it's (laughs) definitely hard, but hopefully you're trying to do it the right way. And again, it starts with coach telling people, we're going to push, but we're not going to go over the line. If you go over the line, we're not, you know, we're not going to deal with it. So it's that balance in there. Yeah. Anything to add on that? No, it, 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 it is a balance. It is. You're in a sport and you're being aggressive going after things. Like you say, you're trying to win. But I think generally there is a line that people know, you know, to step over that line and actually create something that would be construed. Has it happened to us? Yeah. We, we took, you know, we took a, a real stern approach to that. And I think our people know that that's not what we are about. And if you do that, there's going to be consequences. So that's first. But I think in general, our people know, hey, we want to do everything we can to win. That's, that's what we're about. But I think generally in this sport, there is a, 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 a line where people kind of know you're on this side of it or if you step over. And of course, it has happened to us where somebody just made a real bad decision that works for us. We know that can happen. Uh, but in generally, I think it's what Dave said over a long, we got a history. All the race teams have a history. And so I think you kind of, I'm glad of that. And that's kind of our approach, the way we go to things. We, we, we want to stay on the side of, hey, going after it as hard as we can but not stepping over that line. I think, remember I mentioned that early in my career is this motivation to not let coach down. I think that permeates the building. And, you know, when you get a job here, one of the, one of Joe's simple messages is use common sense and don't embarrass us. Mm-hmm. And there's only one name on the shirt you're wearing, and it's none of ours. It's his. <laughs> and so when you wear that shirt, there's this inherent use common sense and don't embarrass Joe because Joe's name's on my shirt, and I don't want to embarrass Joe. And you, everyone knows where coach stands on cheating so the idea is it, can it happen it can but for the most part people have that feeling i had of i don't 
I, I don't want to let him down. And I have the honor of wearing his name on my shirt. So <laughs> I got I to gotta make sure I do things the right way. Yeah, that yeah. makes sense as a guiding principle. I want to close by, as I mentioned, talking about JD. The final principle in the book, in the last few chapters of the book, it's win at life. And it's a lot about what you went through, Dave. The last six years as JD transitioned out of his role as, as president and you moved into it. The book opens with your difficulty trying to pen uh, the eulogy for right. JD's memorial service. And you talk about how JD had been your moral compass in seventh yeah. grade and he took an interest in being your friend and, you know, you had Tourette's syndrome as a kid and yeah. JD like looked upon you in ways right. that others just didn't. <laughs> when you had to write this book and be so candid and, yeah. and provide all these details, like how difficult was it for you, I guess, to, to revisit all of that? In many ways, it was good. It was good for me to write it down, and to, and I had taken notes during it, you know, in a journal. And so, yeah, I think for a number of reasons, it was it was kind of therapeutic for me. I mean, obviously, just to get it off of my chest, but I wanted people to know more about JD. Like, you know, I wanted people to know how much I learned from him. I mean, first of all, this book in general, there's very few original thoughts in it. It is my aggregate learning from people over the years, sponsors, coach, and JD. And so I wanted to honor that. I think I thought a lot about just what I've learned from JD over the years. And I really wanted, I wanted in many ways to hold myself accountable by, because when you tell the story and you say, Hey, JD was my picture of work-life balance. Well, now I'm, now I'm putting it out there to say, Hey, make sure I'm doing all of the things that I talk right. about in this book because JD was kind of my compass. He, he was really for all of us in that. So it, yes, it was hard. And, and I, I think coach would tell you, you know, JD, th this is an interesting distinction. I don't know. There's another human I can say this about. I never in once ever heard JD complain in his whole life. Even, I mean, I'm talking about when he was healthy, when he was sick. And so some of it, I just wanted to document, you know, the courage that JD had going through this horrible illness and it was horrible and, and it was very difficult. Um, I think people can relate to that because many people in their lives have, are dealing with, you know, uh, somebody that's in a similar situation or a difficult situation. And, you know, our, our, our story isn't always rosy. And I just wanted to be real. Again, I think the two best traits of a leader are character and authenticity. And so if I'm going to write a book, I want it to be authentic. I don't want to just say, hey, our 30 years have been, hey, we've been, we're just all having a ball and everything's been fine. It's, there's been a lot of hard stuff. And again, we're also not victims. I mean, it wasn't, we, we don't want anyone to feel sorry for us, but it was, it was difficult. And apart from my faith, I can speak personally, and I think I would speak for Joe, uh, we would have been a wreck. And it was, it, I already kind of was a wreck. I mean, it was already difficult, but I, I don't know how I would have done it apart from my faith. So I hope that encourages others and points them towards faith when they deal with similar things because it's difficult. It was tough. I'm glad I had the opportunity to share it. And, and I know that's a part of the book that, you know, I hope resonates with some folks for, for a number of those different reasons that I mentioned. The story that really resonated with me, Dave, was the, the one where he called you from the road and wasn't sure yeah. where he was going. And I mean, was that sort of like the culmination? Was that, was that the, real, the moment I, you realized like something? Yeah, I think, I think that, that, that was the summer where we kind of noticed, you know, we had, we had honestly thought JD might be going through a midlife crisis because he just was acting a little funny and just wasn't really paying attention to things and you'd have to repeat stuff. And he just kind of seemed checked out. And I think that was the point where we just thought, you know, this is, this is a hard business. And we were growing into a fourth team and we had it was just, we were expanding and things were getting more stressful. And, you know, we didn't realize he was, he was sick at the time. We just thought, you know, Hey, you might need a sabbatical or something. So I think, and I talk about this, each stage in his illness just it would get worse and you you would think gosh it can't get any worse than this and then the next six months would be 
incrementally worse and that that just it just kept it was this pattern that kept happening and it was and you didn't know is this going to last you know for six months six years ten years you just didn't know and and so and he just was a I mean he was a kind of a rock star through the whole thing he never like I said never complained but you just to see somebody to see anybody go through that but to see somebody that you love so much was it was again it was tough in parallel we've got to move on I mean we've got to have the race team had to go on so that was happening you know he would come in every day he had a person that would bring him in and do physical therapy and things and so you're watching that and then walking from that to a meeting with a sponsor or calling someone or dealing with a driver that's upset or whatever and it was I mean it was was five years of that it was a lot and so again it, it speaks to the character of Joe and to the people who work here but everyone that was in the building would tell you it was it was you know it was a brutal five years um of just going through all that but not brutal for anyone more than it was for jd and his family sure sure i can only imagine and you win two championships in that time and you get to this place where you guys are now where again you're president of the company and i think it was interesting dave like how you shared a few stories about that work-life balance where coach joe sometimes (laughs) is very exacting might be the right word yes um, (laughs) about you know where he'd meet with a sponsor and say well I'm, i'm flying back from the sponsor meeting yeah can you have everybody ready by Midnight, because <laughs> we got to meet about something we just talked about, and you, you've gotten maybe coach to to change a little bit. We have, and there's a chapter called "The Last Plane Out of Vietnam." I joke that's how Joe treats every meeting, and it's just this <laughs> uncanny sense of urgency, and 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 it's like I don't want to squelch that, but at the same time, yeah, I think, and again, this is something that we all kind of learned working with JD was that there are certain things that can wait till tomorrow. There's certain things that can't, but let's you know kind of pick our battles let's not make things crises that don't need to be crises because we got enough of them and, and so I think he's gotten better with that coach has uh, you know over the years but I would say there each day has its share of crises that really are crises that you, know, you don't need to make any up so and and I, I joke that I honestly feel like my full-time job is I'm just a like a conflict negotiator you know you're just because you're always dealing with you know our, our jobs are dealing with people and when there's people, there's conflict, whether it's, again, it, it could be someone in the building, it could be someone out of the building, a partner, someone in the industry, a driver, there's always some side of, some sort of conflict. And Joe, again, when I go back to the sense of urgency, I think his MO has been deal with conflict immediately. Don't let it fester. It's not going to fix itself, which it doesn't. So that's where we come in. And, and again, I think one of the things I, I'm good at is I am I can be I'm a peacemaker but it really really exhausts me it's not something I enjoy so it's like I feel the more conflict there is the more the more exhausted <laughs> I am because I'll insert myself and try to help but it's not my favorite thing in yeah, the world yeah. I don't know a lot of people who it's the maybe conflict negotiators they, they it's their favorite thing it's not my favorite thing well the and the book goes <laughs> in personality types and, and yeah. how you've discovered a lot about yeah. yourself and about the, the way others in the company kind of look at things and how it's important to kind of have that blend and that balance yeah for of, sure a peacemaker versus somebody who's just well I, and I'll, I'll say this with coach you know I one of the reasons I wanted to write a leadership book is because often people think, hey, if I if I don't have a certain personality profile, then I must not be a leader. And, you know, coach has a very dynamic personality profile. I have a different one. And it's good that we don't have the same one. Again, he, we probably would have killed each other many years ago if we did, but we don't. And I have a different one. And it, I think whatever personality profile kind of that you have, whatever your different aptitudes are, you can be a great leader. I don't mm-hmm. think there is one leader profile. And so the whole the idea is 
you know, and there's, a, again, a chapter in there that talks about being a complement, not a clone. Often we go into a corporate setting or you're at your job and you think, I'm going to be a clone. I'm going to be the clone they want me to be. I'm going to be just like everybody else to blend in. And I, I think, no, be, be, you know, we, we have a unique uh, thing in that our kind of executive group is all very complementary of each other, meaning none of us are clones of the other person. And I think that's what makes a company or a team work. You know, if Coach had players that were all the same, wouldn't be a very good team. So embrace who God made you to be and be a complement to your team. Don't try to morph in and become a clone because somebody says, hey, you ought to be more like this. No, be more like you. And that's how you can add value is by being a complement, not, you know, not a clone. I think I think a big part of that, too, is for me, the easiest way to be a leader, I think, over the years as you kind of look at it, is it's not what I say, it's what I do. If I'm paying the price and I'm after it and I'm going as hard as I can, then it's kind of easy to turn around and say to somebody else, do this, do that. And so I think, you know, that way of setting the example for yourself, if you're after it, if you're a butt buster, it's easy to tell somebody else. And I think it's easier for other people to follow you because they're going, hey, he's paying a price. Let's go. Coach, we were just talking about the fact that Dave is more of a peacemaker. You're into conflict resolution. As we go forward here for Joe Gibbs Racing into the future, a lot of changes coming for NASCAR in the next few years, especially next year with the uh, next season with the next gen car coming in 2022. As you guys look forward and the, the structural and the business changes that you're facing, I'm sure there are going to be some hard decisions and choices that need to be made, much like you talked about in the book, Dave, telling right. Daniel Suarez. Right. I'm sorry, but we're not going to have a spot for you next year. How do you apply that looking forward into 2022 and beyond with so much happening in NASCAR now? I, I think for me, what I have always felt, whether it was in football or over here, that the number one thing uh, for me to be focused on is the team. So then when it comes to these hard decisions, it could be an individual that you're going to have to, you know, let go. The way for me to deal with that the easy thing i want to push that off i don't like that i don't want to do that but if i do that am i hurting the team and i think almost every single person that over a period of time that i've sat with and had to do something like in football cut players over here make decisions and bring people in and say hey look you know um we're gonna have to go in a different direction every single time that i tell them if I don't do this, I feel like I'm hurting the team. And that's the reason why I have to do this. And that, to me, most most of the time, really, I think people understand. And they would say, you know, but for me, that's the driving force. It's the team. And many times, I don't want that. I don't want conflict. I don't want to have to deal with that. The easy thing would be put it off. But you know if you put it off, then you're hurting the team. Right. And so that becomes the guiding principle for me. And I think over the years, so you talk about changes coming up. I mean, if you think about our 30 seasons, we've seen a lot of change already. You <laughs> yeah. Know? And again, we yeah. went from a one-car, 15-person organization to four cars in Cup, four cars in Xfinity, 500 people, 350,000 square feet. We've seen everything from, you know, again, you think about all the different phases of racing where the, the you know, car tomorrow, whatever. There, there have been changes. And so each time it's, this is the biggest one. How are we going to react? And I think we're going to apply a lot of the same things. It's going to be people. It's going to be, you know, 
trusting, you know, we've, we, we've got a lot of history for doing, you know, doing things hopefully the right way. I will say one of the, one of the traits of coach both in the NFL and here is whenever there has been maybe more change than usual on a particular year, he's generally responded well, whether it was the NFL with a strike or, you know, NASCAR with a major change. And the idea is if you've got the right people and you're getting after it and they all care, you're going to respond hopefully quicker and better than everybody else. So we, we try to view the changes you're talking about as an opportunity. Hey, let's shake things up a little bit. Let's see where we come out. Our goal is, you know, coach says all the time, he wants this here for his grandkids. This is not a short-term play for us. So our interest is what's the best for the sport. And so if, Hey, if this is going to, if this is going to help the sport, we're, we're, we're get we're, we're, we're all for it. And as coach likes to say, as long as we, Hey, we, we just want to win the most races. So whatever, what, what, whatever we have to do to do that will continue to be the goal here. And again, yes, these will be big changes. Maybe they're unlike we've never had, but keep in mind, we've had a lot of changes over the years. And I think it'll be up to all the teams. You know, it's, it's the same for everybody. So everyone will have, will have to respond. And, and again, I hope as we look two, three years from now, we go, hey, this is, we're all very optimistic about the sport. We've got new ownership coming in. By all counts, the TV numbers look good. Everything looks like... I think we're poised. We've got a bright future. We've got a grandson in the building who looks like he's pretty good. So we've got we got some things we're all pretty pretty excited about. You know, looking in the future. To be honest with you, we're pretty pretty bullish on on the future of NASCAR. And the one thing I would say, the two sports I've been in, the NFL and NASCAR. What I've learned about pro sports, I say that they change roughly 30% a year. Hmm. And so both both sports I've been in. And we know in the business world that's happening at least at that rate. And so if you're setting back, you're falling behind. You better be going, and there's going to be new changes for sure. And I can walk through them in football, and I can walk through them how many we've seen here, and we're getting ready to embark on probably one of the biggest changes we've been in. So I think our world, where it is, if you're in business, or I can tell you if you're in pro sports, it's going to be changing, so get ready and get with it. <laughs> <laughs> the only constant in life is change, yeah. and uh, this team, Joe Gibbs Racing, certainly has done a great job keeping up with all those changes. The book is Taking the Lead by Joe Gibbs Racing President Dave Alpern. Thank you so much for giving so much of your time today. I could talk to you all afternoon about this <laughs> book, but I know you guys have a race team to go run, so thanks again for, for doing this. Really Thank you, Nate, for being a part Nate, of yeah, it. We really, again, thanks for, thanks for letting us talk about our story in my book. Appreciate it. Our thanks again to Joe Gibbs and Dave Alpern for being our guests on the NASCAR and NBC podcast to discuss Dave's book, Taking the Lead. They also gave us a unique window into the inner workings of Joe Gibbs Racing, one of the most successful teams in NASCAR Cup Series history, as well as the very difficult transition that the team had to make more than six years ago when Alpern had to take over as team president after J.D. Gibbs was unable to continue in that role. J.D. Gibbs later died in January 2019 after a long battle with a degenerative neurological disease. And as you heard Dave Alpern discuss in the podcast, taking the lead pulls few punches in describing what a brutal period that was for Joe Gibbs Racing and what it was like for Alpern as he watched his best friend fade away. It certainly was very difficult on all fronts, and the book is both compelling yet also hard to read at times. But as Alpern said, he wanted to be authentic in telling the story, and it certainly holds true to that. I give him a lot of credit for laying a lot of emotion bare on the page. But again, the book also gives us insight into Joe Gibbs and what makes his team tick as well. 
There was a lot that I learned, and it was a very interesting summer read. Also want to say thanks to Chris Heline, Amy Gilligan, Danny and John at Joe Gibbs Racing, as well as book publicist Mariah Leon for helping coordinate the conversation and recording of this podcast episode. Greatly appreciate all the help. We're on Olympics hiatus for the next couple of weeks here at NASCAR and NBC, but I'll have some more podcast content in the near future, so stay tuned for that here on the NASCAR and NBC podcast. And also the return of NASCAR America Motormouths on Peacock will be next month. The NASCAR and NBC podcast is available wherever you download podcasts. Please leave us a rating and review to help spread the word. And any feedback, as always, you can send to me on Twitter at Nate Ryan is my handle. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR and NBC podcast. Dogs are an important part of our lives, and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you got to check out NextGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NextGuard Plus chews provide one-and-done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease. Plus, it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored, soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NextGuard Plus Chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Use with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurologic disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting a preventive. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.